0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vigilance Press podcast. My name is James Dossie, owner and publisher of Vigilance Press. Tonight's episode was originally planned to be a Beacon City campaign episode, but unfortunately we're going to have to postpone that. Um, One of our players is still on the road, so, um, you know, uh, Lynn Hill's uh, rock and roll exploits will have to come first this weekend. Um... But we do still have two great guests, um, and we decided to go ahead and do a uh, two-part podcast tonight. We're going to talk about campaign creation, uh, both in Mutants and Masterminds, and generally just in in, uh, superhero and other kinds of role-playing games. And then we're going to do our little movie review of Iron Man 3. We're going to postpone that review until the end though so anybody who wants to uh, bail and avoid spoilers can do so once we uh, bring up the topic but for now we're going to start off with uh, uh, the introductions and tonight I have with us uh, Tolly Gibson. Tali how are you doing tonight?
1: Doing very good. Good afternoon in uh, in the local area here. It's been nice outside and uh, just been enjoying the day. Yeah um
0: for those who haven't heard Tolly in a while or haven't tuned in before, Tolly is a um, game master over on Inferno.net. He do- he hosts a lot of games there, and you're also um, on the help staff there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've basically taken like a position of a community manager there, trying to fire up the community, setting up events, things of that nature. Yep. And
0: if you have a chance to, uh, if you're if you've never gone to Inferno.net, uh, there's there's no e, it's i n f r n o dot net, right?
1: I got that right. Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, um, and look look for Tali. Um, he's actually usually running some one shot games, so you can try and drop in on one of those. But uh, he's got some of the best boards uh tables that I've seen so some cool stuff there if you like the interface he can show you around too. Also tonight, yep. Yeah, um also tonight we have with us uh Rick Jones the author of Six Gun. Uh Rick, how are you doing tonight?
2: I'm quite well, thank you.
0: Good to have you on board. Rick was actually going to be uh game master for season 2 of Beacon City. Oh, is going to be um, game Mastering, so how long have you been uh, role-playing there, Rick?
2: Oh, gosh, since the basic D&D box set, uh, <laughs> I don't want to do the math and figure out how long ago that was, but, uh, yeah, my friend came home from summer camp one year with the box set and said, here, I got. we, we played this great game at camp, and you're gonna run it, and I'm like, okay, and it's been uh downhill ever since <laughs> <laughs> that's cool um,
0: you know, speaking of the original D&D box sets I noticed that uh, Jeff D is running a uh, kickstarter this week um, or starting this week to recreate some of his original color artwork and the one of course that jumped out at me was the um, uh, the island one. Oh, I can't remember the name of the one but it had the, the great big green monster and then there was the coral snake in the foreground and the characters all kind of getting off their boat and having to fa- face this giant creature, and I just looked at that and I just had all these flashbacks of the uh, of the modules. So I'm definitely in a in a nostalgic mood about the D and D stuff this week. <laughs> and his you know, work for so- villains and
2: vigilantes was just great.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, well, I've I've heard some back and forth on on where the rights are right with that with that uh, with that hey, He got them back. He got them back, but there's still, I think, one more appeal going on or something. Oh. So I think I think they're not like making any final announcements about it or discussions about what their plans are until that's all settled. But oh. um, but uh, looking forward to hearing what happens with that. I'm kind of hoping that uh, Jeff D gets to go back to making those characters and bringing them back to life. But we shall have to see what's going on. But uh, in any case, um, we wanted to talk about campaigns. And I'm going to kind of pitch out a structure. You know, basically kind of there's two kinds of campaigns. And you can break either of these down a couple of different ways. But um, I think for a GM to consider uh, what he's going to run, um, breaking it into two types is a really handy thing. I break them down into episodic versus serial and by that I mean um, with serial games and I think Tali calls these like one and dones um, but essentially a serial adventure each adventure is kind of a standalone story and there's not really a hard connection from one episode to the next Uh, whereas episodic there's a much stronger continuity that connects the, the the Uh, each story like a story arc can be planned to take take place over the course of many adventures and you know therefore requires the players to to show up more um would you guys agree that those are pretty pretty good breakdowns or do you have another way that you
1: approach for the most part i'll let tolly go first yeah for the most part I, i i would definitely agree with that that both of those are um, standards of, of types of games, I would say that, and maybe I'm maybe I'm different. I don't know, but um, sometimes I also operate a game where it's more of a a mixture kind of of the two, where you have a you have a world where everything that happens uh, starts kind of connecting, but it's more of an open world as well. To where the you really can uh, let the players kind of guide the story a little bit more than um, than you naturally would. So uh, while I may have a one kind of like overarching theme story that will eventually have a payoff, um, not every episode deals with that overarching theme. So it's kind of a, a more of an open world type. Um, uh, approach to it in in a way to where um, y- you can have that 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 thread uh, where you can as the game master eventually pull you know pull the plug and say okay we're going we're going to go ahead and have all the little tiny details that I've dropped here and there kind of as background things we're going to have that pay off now and have this reveal um, but really the players are kind of guiding the data you know the the session to session stories mm mm-hmm. Rick, what's your take on it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it. It a lot of it uh, also depends on the nature of the gaming group.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Um, um, the way uh, my regular crowd does it is, we have um, one main campaign going on, and then when the GM needs a break, uh, we've got either uh, a backup you know, someone's got something they want to run as a one-shot, or, um, well, we also sometimes just default to, like, bringing out board games. But um, the right now we've got a a big Pathfinder campaign, but we're alternating that uh, every once in a while with a Champions game, and the Champions game is very episodic. And um, uh, so, you know, it, it... when you're designing a campaign, you've got to you know keep in mind uh, who's going to be there, who's how often they're going to show up, uh, that sort of thing. So you know, like Tolly was saying, some games would be better suited towards episodic because you know that you're not sure who you're going to get each week. Whereas if you know that you've got this committed group of folks who's going to largely be there every week, then you can do more. Um, Know, episodic with uh, longer-term adventures that, uh, instead of just one shots.
1: Yeah, definitely. You can you can dig in a lot more and, and really uh, focus on on what's going on and and give them a real focus storyline for sure.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I've had a um, yeah. One of the one of the, the the difficult things is of course that I tend to see that my players or at least my group. React very positively towards the episodic stories. They really care about the characters. They get into these—I'm uh, sorry—the the this um, the, the serial stories where it's it's very it's very tight. The continuity from one episode to the next, and they have this um, desire to come back to those. The problem is when you're all professional adults, and everybody's got you know there there are other responsibilities that pop up especially you know on those weekends when you know you're supposed to have free time but uh, you know that's just free that's time that's opportunistic opportunistic you know people who suddenly need you to help them move or something <laughs> will <laughs> will jump in there and say hey you're not doing anything this weekend right so um, it it becomes di- more difficult to kind of run those um, those really satisfying or arc so it's nice to have you know the compromise. You know the 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 episodic games are even like a um, you know a soft episodic game where it's it's not so um, it's it's there there are long running threads, but it doesn't necessarily have to. You know each each story is kind of wrapped up at the end of each episode, so that you know at the next episode a different cast of characters can continue on, um, and that's that's pretty useful uh, to me is to have you know more than one campaign running so that i can alternate between the two and have one be more um serial and you know for for the uh the players that um, are able to make it every time and then for those weekends when i don't have the same cast of characters i can fall back on something that's a little more episodic absolutely um but uh then again, I only get to run once a week. I think Tali is running, what, four games a weekend or something? Oh,
1: oh, no, <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, no, um, I've, I've got, right now I've got uh, two solid games every week that I run, but I am running four games. What I do is uh, uh, bi weekly games now. Mm-hmm. So uh, on one week, like on a Friday night, I'll run uh, the initiative which is now they we've, we just went into volume two are They've, uh, taken over the state of Georgia, like a uh, protection of the state of Georgia. And they've decided to call themselves, uh, the, uh, the Atlanta Avengers. And, uh, uh cheese factor here sorry uh, i love my group but that's the cheesiest name but and and so uh and then the opposite friday um you know uh I'll, you know run a different game and then same thing on saturday so it uh it works out to where i'm running a bunch of games but they're they're spaced out to where it's manageable
0: you know if i weren't running a company i'd probably be doing the same thing right now right but um, it's kind of funny. Um, I've been trying to alternate game systems lately to learn more about new games. Um, something I didn't used to do. I was very much a one game system guy. I would. I would. Um, and for the longest time, that's been Mutants and Masterminds for me. Um, Rick, what games are you running right now? I mean, I think you mentioned Champions. Uh, are you well, also?
2: Well, I'm not actually running any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, right now. uh, we just finished a long uh, Pathfinder campaign that was inspired by the old D&D Temple of Elemental Evil um, uh, module. And we're about to start the the Rise of the Runelords adventure path. And the other game is more of a a pickup champions game where we're Philadelphia's superhero team and... uh, you know last week, uh, we played this week for the first time in a while, and there were giant slugs created by an evil mad scientist rampaging through new York and we we fought them.
0: <laughs> um, does this have anything to do with like the weather where you're at <laughs> the slugs?
2: No, no, no. i I think uh, our our GM just came up with he, he he's had this mad scientist character that he's mentioned a few times in the campaign backstory. And so I think this was his time and and he's he's a monster maker super villain, so uh okay. I think he's just been sitting on his monster maker plot and decided to now is the time for us to fight the giant evil slugs <laughs> fun uh but right yeah, right now, what I've kind of got on deck uh in addition to uh stealing the the beacon city game out from under you is uh I've just got some one shots that uh will uh do on on weeks when uh, the regular gms are busy or and we don't want to do board games cool
0: cool yeah that's another thing that i've been bringing more and more into my group is the board game stuff and um i do hope but have uh hope to have uh, the sentinels of the multiverse creators um on in, in the near future We we were talking about that via email and Things got busy for both of us. They're in the middle of a Kickstarter right now, so hopefully I'll be able to bring them on um, as early as next week. But I have to, I have to contact them and find out where they are right now. But uh,
2: that is a great card game. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm not normally a fan, but it's not a deck building game. You just have the cards for, and then you play. Uh, so there's not the, the constant need to buy booster packs.
1: Right. Yep. Yeah, I don't mind deck-building games as long as all the cards are already in the setup thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that you can still build a deck out of this massive set of cards that are maybe distributed or something like that. But, um, yeah, I don't really want to get into the whole booster pack. Um,
0: yeah, the, the the newest gimmick... Actually, deck-building games is actually a little different from uh, the ones where you buy booster packs. I mean, most deck-building games... You get all the cards you need to play in one set, and the process of playing the game, you build a deck out of the cards available. It's like the DC game and the Marvel games. There are there are deck building games for those two, but um, Sentinels of the Multiverse is much more. I pick up a deck of cards, and that define you know that deck is my character, and it gives the cards a lot more personality. I think um, because you have you know one focused deck that plays differently and you know what kind of gameplay you're going to get when you pick up that character, if you know that
1: character. So I think, to me... So the cards basically build your character for you.
0: Yeah, it's essentially like, um, for example, the speedster character, Tachyon. Um, that's getting, my
2: favorite one, by the way.
0: I love Tachyon. Um, she's a speedster scientist, and um, her one of her... Uh, her special ability is that she can kind of go through her deck faster and build up her discard pile faster than most of the other characters and her special attacks, which like, I think she has like, uh, four cards in the deck that are based on this, um, come up fairly rarely, but when they do, um, their damage value is equal to the number of a specific type of disc, uh, card that's in her discard pile. So that functions differently from, say, the um, uh, the Wraith character, who's kind of like a Batman, and who's kind of a, like a well-rounded, all-rounded character, but relies heavily on devices and getting devices out into play, and if an enemy happens to wipe out all of her devices, um, you know, her, her remaining power is basically stealth and avoiding damage, so... Each character has their own special uh, gimmicks and, and each deck plays very differently from the others, which is really nice. But getting back to campaigns, um, we were kind of talking about, um, we, you know, we've talked about kind of deciding what kind of game to run. And, and episodic games versus serial games, I think, I think everybody kind of understands the concepts behind those. But just to kind of sum it up, we have... Um, you know, if you have a group that you're not sure who's going to be there every weekend, it's really nice to, to, to have a game where you want to pick the story up and end the story in one sitting and not have to carry threads over to the next adventure. So I think it takes a little more planning to, to tackle a story like that to kind of recognize when it's time to end it and end the session. Um, and what
1: and I'll tell you. For example, um, I actually have a campaign that, that I that is set up exactly like that. Um, it was inspired partially because of things that I like, but then also because of things that I don't like. And one of the things that I didn't like is not being able to always count on people to uh, show up on an uh, you know in an online situation. As uh, as we've already discussed, you know, real life happens. Sometimes people get called into work. Family issues happen. People uh, get pulled away and it's understandable, but at the same time, it's a little hard when you have a uh, progressive story that hinges on maybe uh, a certain character being there and then they're not able to make it that week. What do you do with your group? Well, I usually run through them in, you know, through a one-shot in that kind of situation. Uh, the frustration of that happening over and over again kind of grew into an idea of, well, why don't I set up a game that works where it's just like – uh, you do a, a one story, and then it's it's done. And then uh, the next week, uh, characters come in. It's a whole new story, um, same world, but not, you know, you're not building really a continuity of of a storyline per se. You're building character development because in each issue, uh, these characters get spotlighted more than a uh, progressive plot line. Um, so. Doing it at first, I will admit, the first couple times, that was definitely an issue. The first game went six hours. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, the second game was about four and a half. And while both of those games were amazing and fun and everybody had a lot of fun, I immediately recognized that it's too long. Uh, Especially for the kind of uh, uh, subject matter that we were dealing with, which was early 1960s superhero comic books. So um, through t- trial and error of the first couple times, I did have to develop a kind of a routine or, or a framework that would work f- to kind of ape this genre that I was doing. So I kind of set it up to where it works in three acts. Uh, we have a, a definitive rhythm of how the game works each time. Uh, all the pieces that are put into this framework are different every time. Um, but we always start out with uh, uh, the first act as nothing but complete role playing and character development. The second act has a little bit of dice rolling, where um, but it's not as rigid as usual. Um, we we just let the character describe what trait they can use out of their character sheet to perform something or do something that will get them a success. That goes towards a, a certain amount of uh, successes they need for this challenge section of the game. Each character gets to really just describe stuff, be really kind of free with what they're choosing, and do one roll apiece piece to try to get a success each time. And then the last piece is an actual battle against you know some sort of supervillain on a map and stuff. And uh, we've got it to where it, it you know it's it's about two and a half uh, you know two to two to three hours each time. And that's that's appropriate, and that you know, and it's fun. We all get to um, spotlight everybody. Everybody gets to do a lot of great role playing, but they also get to have that um, battle moment uh, there at the end with the big climax.
0: And that again is is um, you know, uh, not everybody's time frame is going to be the same, or or demands are going to be the same. A lot of people. Um, kind of see four to six hours is kind of their sweet spot when they're actually sitting on a table with people. But, you know, when, when you're working online or when you're working with, uh, you know, uh, people who have shorter demands or, you know, stronger demands on their time, you know, you're going to run into, you know, something that's got a more, more
1: of a rhythm like Tali's does. Well, you know, and, and also the subject matter really determines the time because mm-hmm. my other games do go into the four hour region, but, when you're dealing with kind of those six, six early 60s comic books where literally each comic book was a one-and-done issue, uh, there was no continuing kind of like plot line. They were just fun and whimsical. Um, to try to kind of represent that, we try to be very kind of free-flowing and, and kind of quick also with the subject matter, you know?
3: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So, Rick, what's your... Um What's your best advice for trying to plan out a short you know um a short episode uh where it's it's going to you know where where you're gonna hit that kind of ending and not have to carry over to a a second session
2: well a lot of the the skill i've I've got with putting that sort of thing together comes from running things at conventions where You've got you know you're on a hard time limit because somebody's you know got to go to their next round, um, and, and when you want when you do that, like Tali said, you can't just have it be oh well you know um, Captain Awesome's uh, nemesis shows up this week if and if nobody you know if that player doesn't show up, then you're kind of stuck. So you you have to make the villain or villains uh, uh, appropriate so that even if one guy isn't there the the group isn't you know, the, the, the game doesn't hinge on one character's skills or knowledge or the fact that it's their nemesis. So if... Right, the uh, drama isn't diminished. Right. And you've got to make, so um, you know, like in convention rounds, if you you try to have some some overlap in skills if not in powers because you don't want folks with the same powers but if you've got two sciency types and two mystic types and two detective types then even if nobody picks like you know, even if nobody picks uh, I'm blanking on who in the challenger who's in the challengers but if nobody picks um, tower then you've still got say viridian as a strong hitting hitting type or uh if if for technical skills there's you know bounce and safeguard and that kind of thing so Mm
3: -hmm.
2: so you're not stuck if the character with the crucial skill uh you know if their kid has you know gets a fever that night
0: right and that's that's actually um a strong argument for allowing players to overlap skills one of the the things that's on the player end of things of creating a a uh, campaign that can be kind of difficult is players have a strong urge to want to be unique um and and so they'll often try to find the the archetype that hasn't been filled yet um but it's actually not a huge problem gm's tend to encourage this, but it's, it's up to the GM to kind of remember that sometimes it actually helps to have a little bit of redundancy uh, or at least overlap uh, if you don't want to call it redundancy between character to character
1: Absolutely um, in, in my initiative game in, in our last uh, volume we actually had basically three big tanks uh, tank type characters uh, as main characters in the book and uh, while some people would say that's you know that's just too much, um, because of the characters' personalities and the way that their um, powers were are, were different from each other as far as their origins and stuff, it they never felt like you know they were doing the same thing. They were, and also we were using the Marvel Heroic System where they were able to basically just be more descriptive with um and kind of free with the with the basic description of super strength or things like that you know to kind of build their own description of what that meant and how it how it looked and things like that um and but then again uh the big thing for me was always the dramatic side of it their personalities and that's what really uh made them different and unique and powerful as characters aware the fact that they were all strong, big, and super tough, it, it, that didn't detract from anybody else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
0: One of the um, campaigns that I've uh, run for a long time, and this is this kind of bleeds into the the discussion we were talking earlier about uh, um, Inspiration, but um, You you keep coming back to the style Being important, you know, the style of the story you're telling Being important to how you kind of present Things, and Um, one of the You know, I I take a lot of inspiration From different sources, like any movie I go See, um, is likely to inspire The desire to run a game Reflected somewhere in there Um, I watch uh, I'm, I'm a fan of certain Anime, um and I've had a uh, you know some long-running campaigns that were inspired by that. But I have to be careful when I'm designing these to not have too many really tightly choreographed storylines that have long-running story arcs. And that's a little difficult because, at least in my opinion, it's more challenging to write a short story than it is to write a long-form novel. Because the long-form... Uh, story it's very easy to just kind of put the place the put the pieces out there and let the characters kind of guide things mm-hmm. um, but when you're when you're trying to you know tell a story in a shorter format you, as a GM you kind of have to have a little more of a stronger hand on the till and kind of keep you know keep an eye on the time uh, you know even if you're just Not not necessarily keeping a stopwatch there, but you know, just kind of keep an eye on the pacing and making sure things are moving at kind of a brisk pace. Um, So you know, the two the two kind of have a different feel when you're playing them, too. At least I found.
1: Yeah, and that's very true. And I think when you're trying to design those smaller like one shot games, or if you have a campaign where where it is just a you know like. Like you said, a, a, a shorter episode each time. Um, you, you really have to kind of think about it beforehand. And, and thinking about that timing and stuff really is kind of important because you want to make sure that you hit the, uh, the emotional beats, the, the things that are important in the story. Um, while keeping it interesting and, you know, action-y for your players at the same time. And, uh, you know, that's just something that I think, you know, everybody out there that runs games and uh, does this kind of stuff, you you know, the more that you practice it, just the the easier it is to do it. I would just uh, suggest to everybody out there, try to write some one-shots every every once again, you know, and and it kind of does use a different part of your GM brain to where you, um, uh, you, you do kind of have to start understanding the, um, the format of ro- role-playing setups in, in a much more compact version, uh, rather than having that, that long, wide uh, range where you can just kind of breathe out and, and bring in story points when you want it. This is something where you really do have to, to, to compact it and, and still get that, um, that emotional pull. For your players every time, and um, it, it practice. You know, practice makes perfect. Uh, uh, the, you know, I'm 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 no, nowhere near perfect, but I, I love practicing, and I think uh, the more that I do these one shots, the better I, I get at having a grip of, of of a good format that's that's good for people. You know, especially at at, at the Inferno thing where we do these little festivals, these little one shot online festivals where uh, people come on and and GM. Uh, games for people and, and they're like in little four hour time slots so you know going into it you know you've got four hours to do something you can make it shorter than four hours if you want to but I guarantee you almost everybody is right at four hours if they don't bleed over just a little bit you know what I mean mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, just learning that just doing that even I think kind of really helped uh, build my skills on on doing those shorter form uh, stories
0: Rick, you got any advice on on like the shorter form or should we move on to inspiration?
2: Well, I think one one of the the cheats I've had with convention rounds in the past is that if things take longer, you have to know when to throw things out. Um, you know, if if a group gets bogged down or if they are having fun with one particular part, and you're looking at the clock, going, "Oh, you know, they're they're having fun here, but I've really got to get them to uh, the next uh, thing before you know, so they can get to the final you know, climactic battle of good versus evil." Then you you have to kind of on the fly know, but you know what that that little side spot idea um, that can just go away.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's editing on the fly, which um, it's 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 one of the reasons why I kind of m- boiled down my my uh, scenario creation uh, approach over the years to a very streamlined kind of approach. I'll usually have one or two interesting scenes that I kind of want to hit, just because I think there's something cool or dramatic about them. But you know, I'll I'll try to. I'll try not to overburden, like when I'm doing a short form episode, I'll try and essentially go with here's the conflict and let the players know what the conflict is right up front, you know, as opposed to running like a mystery. A mystery can be um, a little more problematic for the short form because if the players go down the wrong path, and they don't
1: find the rabbit hole, or yeah. whatever it is. If they it, just can't find the clue, or they find it and they can't figure out what it means. or
0: Right, or they interpret it differently than you expected, and they go off yes. in some other direction. It can it can really kind of put a crimp on it. One one way to cheat at that is to actually have... Like, if you're going to do a mystery, and, and everyone listening can now be seeing one of my big cheats, is um, not actually have only one person who did it. Like like if you're doing a who done it, actually let the players kind of pick who done it by by their chain of logic so that whatever they kind of wind up deciding as long as they can prove it somehow, that probably is the villain and it may be the guy you intended them to pick all along and that, you know, yeah, you led the right breadcrumbs down, but if they come up with something else that actually is a more fun idea and at the same time kind of makes sense. Feel free to switch it to that person yeah
2: <laughs> totally uh, that is that is definitely something uh, and and you don't even have to do that for um, like mysteries um, a lot of times players will uh, this is something that works more in, in longer form games but I guess if it's episodic within the same continuity it would work but if you know as a throwaway line you say oh well the city used to have a superhero but uh he retired a long time ago and the players are like well, why did he retire and what what happened to all of his villains I, you know when when just cuz the superhero retired retired doesn't mean that the villains are going to go oh i guess we should quit too and <laughs> you know they when they find something like that that maybe it was just a throwaway line for you but they 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 really latch onto it to go oh i guess i better come up with a good reason and or even let them uh come up you know let them while they're theorizing come up with the reason and then uh when they do figure it when they do quote unquote figure it out then they're like ah i was right
3: mhm mhm
0: yeah that those kind of things letting the players help you steer the story is a great way to one take some of the burden off of you of having to sweat you know hoping that they'll find the right path but the other advantage it gives you is that it makes them feel really smart when they got it right and it kind of they they kind of get into it and and it's a little more fun and of course they're contributing to the creation of the story on a on a a pretty profound level there when they're actually coming up with ideas that you then integrate into the story. So that's always yeah. that's always a good way of keeping them engaged. Just don't let them know it's, you know, don't don't be too
1: transparent about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, uh- it, again, it's like the more that the more that you practice at all this stuff, like the better you can get at those. Uh, like you said, editing on the fly or what I call improvising it. You know, uh, just coming up with those improvised things because of you know they take it in a different direction than what you're thinking about. Um, I think the worst thing that you can do as a GM um, to to yourself, but also to your players, is to get upset because of the fact that there was a beat or or something that you wanted to happen but because of something plausible and like you said more you know just as fun or more fun that the players have uh, come up with because of just organically things that are happening and it's going to bypass that that thing that you had planned getting upset about that and and god forbid taking it out on your players is absolutely the worst thing you can do you got to learn to let go of those things and just be happy that, you know, the story is progressing organically and move along with it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's one of
1: the reasons why
0: I try not to plot too far ahead of, you know, if I'm doing a long form game. I try not to plot too far ahead. I try to have ideas that I want to hit. And I'm pretty good now, you know, with 30 years of experience or whatever, of of being able to kind of spot the the beats and and kind of figure out where the players are going to go and and kind of lead them in the right way, give them the right clues, but you know, even if they don't head in my direction or they come up with a solution that's just so wild and 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 just so different from what I expected them to do, I still embrace it because it's a lot more fun for them if they're doing something unexpected. And it's also fun for me because then I get to try and you know, frantically figure out something on the fly instead of having to just kind of go through the motions of, of my carefully laid plans. But, um, you know, so I've, yeah. I've learned to I've learned to enjoy that spontaneity.
1: Um, Absolutely.
0: But, you know, it's like when I'm looking at a long-form campaign, I don't want to plan the end episode at the same time as I'm writing the start of the campaign. That would be kind of foolish. I, I want to create the overriding threat and the overriding themes that to to borrow some words from fate uh the fate core rpg but uh you know i want to kind of establish you know guidelines that are going to help inform the campaign as we go forward but at the same time you know if the players manage to defeat the main villain you know three you know stories in and i had a you know hadn't anticipated that then i need to kind of find some way to keep the story moving to reach, you know, my ultimate goals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and like you said, those challenges are fun. And that's what makes being a, a, a game master kind of rewarding, at least for me on a, on a weekly basis is, uh, having those kind of, uh, instant, uh, quote unquote, I guess, kind of problems, not problems in the sense of like trouble, but in almost like a puzzle, um, Happen there, and then being able to solve them in a way that uh, everybody enjoys and uh, you feel good about.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, really briefly, let's kind of touch on the topic of inspiration, um, and then we'll jump into our Iron Man three review. But um, you know, I've I've talked about you know one of one of the things that I use for long form games is kind of an inspiration are are like anime and. Um, of course, comic books are always a great source. Um, what kinds of things do you guys draw inspiration from? Let me jump to Rick.
2: Well, um, I tend to uh, take a bunch of things from a bunch of uh, different sources and kind of throw them in a blender. Um, when uh, I, I the last time I ran a Mutants and Masterminds game, it was right around the time that... Uh, the uh, emerald city knights game was start a uh, campaign they they had like released the first chapter
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um i didn't want to just run that campaign because i knew that just based on the way publishing works that uh, i would not be able to you know the my players would be going faster than they would be releasing chapters mm-hmm. but i liked the idea of a event that um, kicks off a bunch of new super people. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I did, it wasn't the Silver Storm and uh, I uh, uh, liked the idea of a city that hasn't had superheroes for a while. And in my head, I had just had you know, there was just a placeholder there was a superhero who um, I liked the character Daedalus from uh, from the Freedom City setting. Mm-hmm. But uh, instead of having him be an, an Iron Man guy, he was more like a, a Doc Savage, um, gadgety superhero guy. And mm-hmm. so I had Doc Daedalus as the city's hero. And the heroes were finding out that, oh, he's, and he really is. Well, they weren't sure at the time. But, you know, they were finding out that he's this immortal guy who's been. Uh, a hero in different incarnations up and down through time. And so, and the, the, they were figuring that out. And uh, a lot of times I just found different villains that, from different sources. Uh, uh, there, I used some icons characters and I used some characters from uh, the, uh, there's a wild talent setting called Progenitor that I really liked. Um, and I grabbed villains from all these different spots and made them some of the, the newly created villains. So I, I just tend to look around and see what's, what's interesting me at the time and grab a bunch of that stuff and throw it in a blender and, and see what comes out.
0: Mm-hmm. What about you, uh, Tully? Is that kind of your approach?
1: Well, um, kind of in a way, I mean, uh, it's funny. I, I've, I've only been really, like, progressively been playing role-playing games maybe like three years now. Um, You know, I've talked about this before. I thought about it for the longest time, uh, read the books and stuff, never got to play them. only been able to do it uh, continuously just here recently in the last few years. Uh, I I come from a a long background of being a comic book nerd, you know. So I don't I don't I,
0: know if you heard I don't know if you heard Rick. He was complimenting you on making up for lost time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh I jumped in more than headfirst. It was <laughs> you, you, I jumped in, drank all the, the pool RPG water. Pool. Uh <laughs> through through you know yeah, it was crazy. Um so yeah, but um you know, my my big influence originally was just mainly comic books because uh, you know, I started playing the superhero games. Uh, just like you were talking about earlier, I was mainly a one system guy. I was really in love with the Mutants and Mastermind system. Recently, uh, obviously, since I've got my own podcast about about the system, I've also really got into the Marvel Heroic system. Um, and R.I.P. on on that one. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that's really unfortunate. But um,
0: yeah, I mean, uh, there's one of the things that was a little frustrating me for me when when it. Uh, when that system, when they announced the cancellation, was, of course, all the people immediately hypothesizing about why they felt that it went down or whatever, you know. And to me, it was like... Uh, I, I look at that system as something that was really well-made. There's a lot of love put into it. I know friends who put that system together put a lot of work into it. And I just kind of had to... You know, uh, trying trying to analyze that was not my goal. So for people who might have been asking, you know, if we were going to do a podcast, kind of going over Marvel heroic, you know, and its demise, that's probably not going to happen. But I still think that that system is one of the best, hero- you know, superhero role playing games ever made.
1: I mean, Absolutely, I would definitely and- put it into my top five at least. Yeah, it really made me think about uh, designing adventures completely differently and also playing them um uh, and and obviously it really inspired me and felt I felt passionate about it enough to 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 do my damage control podcast um, and you know but we're going to keep going with that because like you said it it is a great system and uh, now that the Marvel license isn't necessarily tied down with them anymore so we can kind of br- you know branch out with the show a little bit and talk about all the cool things you can do with the system um, beyond just that that IP but. um but yeah, back to influences. Um, you know, uh, So I came to it really from a comic book's point of view. But the more I kept gaming, uh, the more I noticed that when I was outside of gaming, I would think about other stories in terms of gaming mechanics and things of that nature. So while I might watch Star Trek, I'll be thinking of how I would... You know, while uh, you know, let's say Picard is is talking to Q and and they're having this interaction, how that would come uh, to play as you know, like these uh, uh like a a, per, a persuasion role or or you know a deception on Q's point, you know, and things like that nature, and break breaking stuff down, and you know, I'll, I'll, like you said, I tend to do that with movies and things of that nature. So I, I find that I do pull a lot of just like pop pop culture storytelling. Um, into the rhythm um, uh, of gaming, uh, you know, draw influences from all that kind of stuff. So I am pulling it from books, literature, from movies, TV shows, all, all kinds of stuff. Anything that sticks in there that makes me think, uh, you know that that would make an interesting twist. Uh, of course, you know, not not using things uh, point for point or, or line for line, but uh, just the essence of things and pulling things in like that. Um, another thing that I've Uh, that I've really found myself doing, and I don't know if this is the same for you guys, because I I feel like you guys are are a little bit older than me, um, is that I tend to draw a lot of influence from video games into my gaming um, design as well uh, when I'm setting out, uh, especially for one-shots and stuff of that nature where um, I want to make it accessible and fun for people. I tend to find myself putting in like little mechanics that would be uh, familiar to people that play video games. Um, but also, I, I find that a lot of times they just work really well in a gaming uh, environment as far as giving people multiple choices um, of things to do, like multiple missions within one setting, you know, uh, letting them choose that, and then that leads me off into this branch, whereas if they had picked this one, then we would be on this branch this episode. Um, which is definitely for me like a video game thing where you, if on your first playthrough if you pick this choice you know you're going off in this direction but if you pick this choice you would have went off in this direction and um, uh, things of, things of that nature. Uh, I was talking to you guys off off show earlier about my Liberty Inc game where uh, I took a lot of direct influence from uh, this classic uh, little PC game called Freedom Force. Uh, where you're, it's basically a, an action RTS where you're controlling a team of little superheroes that were from the 60s. And there was a mechanic where they would have alternate little side missions that would build them uh, a spendable currency, and then they could use that currency to build up members onto the team and I actually added that into one of my role-playing games, uh, uh, giving them little extra... Side missions, using the Mutants and Mastermind system, but adding this mechanic from the video game on top of it, where they could do uh, you know secondary objectives and get the spendable thing and then uh, add more characters that they can then uh, switch from using their character in, in the next episode and, and use that character. Um, so really, I'm just drawing stuff from, from everywhere, anything that I feel like would be fun or compelling. Uh, I try to try to put in there and 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 see what happens. Doesn't always work. Some of my ideals have been pretty wacky and crazy, and uh, <laughs> but most of them have worked. And you'll be surprised sometimes. Some of the most challenging, um, uh, kind of problematic in your mind ideas that you might think would would uh, fail. Just try them. Just get them out there and see what happens. And uh, you know most of the time people are going to dig it because of the passion that you have behind it you know
0: yeah one of the things that um i think stops a lot of would be you know people who would be really good gms from from actually trying their feet trying their hand at it is that kind of fear of oh i'm going to get it wrong and the thing is every artist gets it wrong You know, it's like, that's how you learn. That's how you do it. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. They're going to be awesome mistakes. Some of those mistakes are going to surprise you. And some of them are going to be terrible. But at the same time, you're going to learn from each mistake how to do something cool next time. And, you know, as long as you're aware of it and practicing and kind of um, just just willing to make those mistakes, you're going to have a much better time. Because, you know, it's not about getting it perfect it's about having fun and as long as everybody's having fun um or at least trying to have fun then you know you're going to learn something that'll help you next time to make it more fun so um but as far as inspiration for games um i'm kind of like tolly where i'll look to things and um i'll be crunching numbers in the back of my head like you know i go see the avengers and i'm going okay how would i break this down into action scenes return you know in, into initiative or into um you know like a, a skill challenge for mutants and masterminds things of that nature um and now i'm starting to do that with fate because i've been steeping myself in fate core because we're working on that Tian Sha project which is coming to a head soon and um you know, light and plug. So you know, I'll, I'll <laughs> I'm I'm looking at things. All it's all about creating advantages now and trying to um, distill things into the idea of 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 uh, uh, of aspects and advantages and things like that, which makes me think of things in a completely new way, which is a bit uh, very reminiscent of the Marvel Heroic System, actually. In terms of a lot of the uh, the kinds of ideas that you come up with, as far as like creating advantages and things like that. Um, but uh, for inspiration, you know, uh, there's there's two kinds of inspiration that I would break it down to. There's inspiration that's just that sparks an idea for me that I can use to surprise the players, and then there's inspiration that I and the players share, which give us some sort of common ground that makes it easier to create something. And as an example of that, I mean, the easiest example I can think of is if you're going to sit down and play a Star Wars role-playing game, that's 99% of us nerds out there have seen it and understand the Star Wars universe at least on some basic level. And all you have to say is let's play a Star Wars game, and if everybody enjoys Star Wars, they all know what to expect from the setting, they all know kind of what to expect from the tone, they all know, you know, what... What you know? What kind of the limits of superpowers are? Oh, I could be a Jedi, or I could have a spaceship, or I could have a droid, or maybe be a droid. You know, there's all these different elements to the setting which kind of are defined for them. And you know, with me and my friends, that's often anime. Like I can point to a show called Naruto, um, which is kind of a a, a ninja saga if you will about this young boy growing into a young man um and learning all these magical skills as he goes forward that's a very um uh serial uh storyline where each each episode connects very tightly to the next one um but uh you know it's very series oriented but um when when I explain that to my friends, they you know they instantly go, "Oh, I know exactly what kind of character I want to make." Um, how often do you kind of um, do you guys find that you know you, you that you you've 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 taken inspiration from something and then find difficulty in in explaining that to your players? I mean, is there something that you can use as a shortcut? Uh, we'll start well, with Rick.
2: I've I've had the the issue uh, in our. In our group, um, there are folks who are like me, and and Theron, and a couple other folks who are huge comic book fans and know far too much of the details of you know every obscure character in Marvel and DC and independent universes. And then there's folks who have seen there's folks in the group who have seen you know Iron Man or the Avengers. And that's really all they've got. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to, especially if you're if you're going to run something uh, in an established universe, you can't handicap. You you have to be sure not that you know, not being an enormous comic book nerd isn't a handicap. And so that is why when uh, when we were discussing superhero games, one of the Requests from the non-comics junkies was, can it not be an established universe because I feel like all the stuff's going over my head?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's actually a, a good point. One of the things that a lot of us who are comics fans look to as a point uh you know an asset, like if we we're gonna play DC Adventures or Marvel Heroic, is that we can use these familiar characters either as player characters or as, you know, NPCs that the players will get excited about because they know that character. But for the person who doesn't know the situation, that can actually be a barrier to enjoying it because they feel like they're missing out on something that the other players are getting.
1: Yeah, they're not in on the on the quote joke. You know, it's like the Exactly like you said, they feel left out and you know, it, it's one of those things that I've seen too where um, you know, sometimes it's just really important to sit down and and, and talk about the tone and the, the you know, the themes that you want to come up without spelling out the storyline for people, really establishing the, the, the tone for everybody and, and the setting and, and why it's important. Uh, I think is really kind of important to the longevity and, and the the health of of your game because um, it's so easy to just assume that that people are going to understand you know like uh, for instance dark superheroes that they're just going to get it if they sign up for the game or or you know if they if they're into playing the game um, but th- like you said they may may not have all that background uh, knowledge that you have and, and all all the uh, the lore in their heads that that you have to to work off of. So, um, I've I've had that situation happen. You think for, you know, and, exa- and especially on an online situation, uh, I'm always really, really uh, explicit with exactly what the game is about um, on the page where people have to sign up to try to give people a, a, a real solid idea of exactly the kind of tone we're going for. And exactly what, um, you know, they're going to kind of expect from my side of it. Then I like to usually, once I have a set of people, I usually like to have a, a an initial uh, kind of just like a meeting session where we then talk about it. And, and uh, make sure that everybody is on the same page because if you just have that one person that is on a completely different page, it can just ruin it can just like poison your game and it's so terrible you've put in all this effort you've got all these other people that are on the same page as you, and then you've just got this one person just derailing stuff, and they're not trying to they just you know they just they're coming from a different place mm hmm and um, establishing all that stuff is just so so important, and you know, uh, while sometimes it's a little bit of a pain to 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 you know have to take time to, to do all that extra work, um, and uh, you know, of of. Really making sure that everybody understands where you're coming from and then also finding out what they expect from the game, what they want to get out of it, I think is also important. Um, That way, when you go into it, you know that uh, it's already starting out with a really strong heartbeat and uh, people are going to be more invested, I feel, as well, if everybody's discussed it and uh, feel like they're on the same page with that stuff. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So, um, Rick, did you have any final uh, quotes you wanted to add in there before we jump to our Iron Man review?
2: Uh, just that um, you know, the 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 pre campaign meeting, either in person or or over lots of email, is a really good idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of these things that I sometimes take for granted with my group because we know each other so well by now. But there is a strong, you know, if you take the time to lead into a campaign and give everybody a chance to really make sure they understand it so they can make characters that really connect to the story and connect to the themes in a way that they're comfortable and happy with, they're going to be a lot more enthusiastic about the game
1: six or seven sessions down the line. Yeah, and you will too because you're feeding off of that energy and everybody's like enjoying it from the same kind of... You know, from from the same place, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's just really really satisfying. And and you know, I know a lot of people out there, uh, especially new GMs, and and I can speak from that side. You know, only having a few years in uh you know there's a lot of times where you're going to have those situations come up early on and trying to run games and stuff before you learn to kind of start feeling people out before the actual sessions start going on it's really important to make it an enjoyable experience for everybody um equally so uh that's always like the big thing um my last thing that I would, I would actually say for people out there, uh, since we were talking about inspiration as well, is one thing that I found with these one-shots is they really give you a chance to be as creative and as challenging as you want to be. If you have a system that you love but you think maybe there's a cool mechanic from a video game or something and you'd like to layer that on top of this game that you already love, try it. If there is some sort of like weird television show that you like, say for instance, I uh I did a one-shot using the Marvel heroic system, but I tweaked it a little bit um and uh did a did a basically like an homage to Danger Five, which is this weird action comedy from Australia, and uh and it worked perfectly. Like, you know, who would think, you know, you could pull some weird action comedy about a team of spies that are uh, always their main mission is to kill Hitler but it's in the 60s so like (laughs) World War II has gone all the way into the 60s and uh, it's this weird wacky thing and and the guy that gives them their their missions is a man who speaks very poshly and has the head of an eagle and uh, but yet it worked you know and my players loved it and we had a great time Um, do not be afraid to try new things Uh, draw influences from everywhere uh, just have fun. That's that's you know that's the main thing about all this. Uh, you, you try to make stuff that's fun for them and do it for you.
0: Yeah, you mentioned video games, and then immediately took me back to something that I've actually done a few times. Is actually take like a setting or an idea from a video game, and I layered it on top of you know a game I was running. Um, one simple example I can give is um, uh, I had an adventurous sci-fi setting that uh, my players were basically uh, just um, trying to think of how to sum it up very quickly. Basically, it was an ongoing adventure fantasy set in space. And in this particular episode, I decided to feature a big race track um, adventure. It It was essentially there was a story that revolved around, you know, the players needing to win this race. And I borrowed all the Racing mechanics from the Wipeout video game, so they were racing these hovercraft uh, vehicles, and you know they would have to try and hit these different pads to activate weapon systems or speed boosts and things like that. And, yeah, that's cool. And uh, oh, it worked great. But being able to just you know steal stuff like that is is definitely something you should never be afraid of doing, because one, if it doesn't work, you never have to use it again. And two, if it does work, you can use it over and over, (laughs) and and they will love you for it. So it's just a matter of, you know, look for these opportunities to kind of, you know, uh, take people out of their normal routine and kind of give them something new to play with, and they'll enjoy the game that much more. You know, it's okay to change the rules once in a while, as long as you're fair with it. But um, uh, that kind of stuff is just really fun to do.
2: That sounds like a great idea.
0: It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I was actually running the uh, DC Heroes role-playing game system
1: at the time. So, um, yeah, and I love Wipeout. Wipeout's great. So (laughs) can't go wrong with that.
0: Yeah, I miss it when they. You know, I missed the first Wipeout when they still had character pictures for the different teams, and uh, they got rid of that with Wipeout Two, and it never felt as personal to me. I was like, oh. I miss, miss oh, the I'm... cute anime girls jumping up and you know jumping for joy. It was just a still picture, but it was just yeah. this girl jumping up at the you know for the victory pose. You know, she's jumping in the air and I'm like I always wanted to play that team because I wanted to see her jumping for victory at the end of the race. <laughs> <laughs> I just like playing it in 3D, so I'm happy with the new version. That's well. pretty
2: cool. Yeah.
0: Alright, so speaking of 3D, there's a movie out there available in 3D right now. Um, I haven't seen it in 3D, though. Um, we're going to talk about Iron Man 3 now. So if you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want things spoiled for you, you can go ahead and tune out, um, and and uh, we'll try not to... You, you, uh, the only thing I guess you'll miss is our review. Um, but uh, for those of you who are still listening... Um, I hope you've seen the movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really cool and fun. Uh, everyone here has, has, has seen it
1: right. We're not spoiling
0: it for you guys?
2: Yeah, I saw it last night.
1: <laughs> yep, I actually did see it in 3D. You did? Uh, okay. a few, yeah, a few nights ago. It was, it was really enjoyable.
0: Cool. There's one scene that I think would be really cool in 3D,
1: but um, let me just go ahead
0: and uh, I'll give my capsule review and then kind of like pass it on to you, you guys to to comment and contradict me on it, but um, I thought it was a lot of fun the big spoiler, the big thing that everybody, you know, the big plot twist in the middle of the movie that you're either gonna love or hate, depending on you know, how invested you are in in seeing the comic characters brought to the screen as they are, is that the Mandarin turns out to be something of a put-on he's something of a fake-out and I thought that was brilliant because it kind of reflected what the Mandarin was in the comics in a metatextual way. Um, where he is essentially somebody's you know, um, uh, ethnic stereotype of whatever will freak out the American public the most. And that's kind of how he was played in the movie. Is He was this um, archetypal villain who was created to threaten the American public. And I thought that was really, really inventive and clever. But in general, I thought that the movie um, hit some great story beats. It took Tony Stark into some new, challenging uh, places where he didn't have all the assets he usually does to, to solve problems, like he's waving a magic wand. And and then there was this nostalgia porn ending with all these different armor suits that that you know you've seen in the trailers. So that's not too much of a spoiler, but. I thought it was just overall, it was a great ride. I've seen it twice now. I never felt like it was slowing down or boring me. And at the same time, I felt that they managed to keep Tony Stark sympathetic in a way that uh, it's very easy to lose with a character who's so kind of powerful and and, and self-empowered. It can be really hard to keep that kind of a character interesting without making it uh, kind of tacky and I thought they did a really good job of, and, and also kind of carrying over the scars of what happened to him in the Avengers and kind of creating that continuity there um, Rick what's your opinion on the movie
2: um, normally I am really hard to surprise uh, especially with comic book movies because I've been reading comics you know the comics were some of the first things I read um and so the twist of the mandarin just being this big fake out that blew me away and i, I cuz you you know as soon as we saw the trailers it's like oh the mandarin's the villain and you know there's this wonder of well how they're going to keep away from the unfortunate uh stereotypes that he was created under uh, and uh, they've you know they've pulled away from this whole Ming the Merciless Fu Manchu uh, with alien rings thing, and made the Mandarin more of a, a modern character in the comics, and and less uh, a uncomfortable stereotype. But there was still the the question of how were they going to pull it off without being uh, offensive or creepy or whatever, and the whole swerve of the Mandarin being a shell game and this was all a plot by uh, the AIM guy uh, was brilliant and um, I also thought they came up with a great way of keeping the hero out of with taking, keeping the mask off because for, in, movie, you know, in comics we're used to characters keeping their masks on um, but in movies, you know you want you know the the actors want to have their face out there, which is why you know Captain America lost his mask midway through the Avengers um and uh, why in the first Iron Man movie uh, a lot of uh you know in the big battle, his faceplate was off, and so having tony you know out of out of Iron Man suits, and even in the final battle, where he was just switching from suit to suit, which was just so incredibly awesome. <laughs> that was um, great. Um, that, uh, you know, it kept... You, you got to see Don Cheadle and Robert Downey Jr. running around being superheroes, and you still saw their faces. I guess and Gwyneth Paltrow got to run around and be a superhero without a costume.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So... I haven't seen it in 3D. The one scene that I think would really benefit from 3D, or at least to me, that it would maybe be a little easier to follow the action, which is something that I've noticed that good 3D movies make easier for me, would be the uh, kind of barrel of monkeys scene. What? It, how, did, how did that play in, in 3D, Tully?
1: Well, what I really liked about the 3D just in general was that it's that subtle type of 3D to where it's just... Um, you know things aren't really popping out at you but there's um different levels of perception there in within the screen and um i i i thought the whole thing looked great um, you know i i had some issues with the second iron man um but even it just it felt like to me even in the third one they were they were taking more care uh, with more kind of attention to detail with the visuals in the third one
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the second one was really kind of lackluster on the visual side especially if you watch the first Iron Man and then immediately watch the second one I don't know if it would I didn't watch the credits to see if it was a different um, director of photography or what it was but there was a definite, definite kind of drop in the quality of the visuals for me Um, be it from the color and everything else this one was just beautiful the way the 3D uh, worked was really uh, really really good Um, and you know to touch on what Rick was saying um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I really 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 loved about the movie was the fact that he was out of the suit so much Uh, the fact that we got to see character development rather than just action 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 uh, not to side-trail into another uh, discussion of a different movie series, but one of the problems that I had with the Star Trek thing was it's just action, action, beat you over the head, action, action, action. Uh, with uh, this movie, it was great to really see those downbeat moments where you get to uh, understand the character more, you get to see more vulnerabilities. The fact that they uh, kept going back to his anxiety about feeling kind of helpless there as he was falling through the uh, portal uh, there at the end of the Avengers movie and making that an important part of the history of this universe for him Mm -hmm. I thought was really great as a fan of continuity and as a fan of superheroes the fact that they're building their own continuity is what makes these movies amazing to me um, they're, you know, no, they don't follow the comic books, but they are crafting their own continuity, which leads me to the other thing that, uh, I loved about this, which is also kind of a s- small nitpicky thing, but I love the fact that there was no major cast change between two and three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, that was very jarring between one and two to, uh, have Ro Rhodey get changed. Uh, so for me, the fact that they're they're kind of staying back on track again, I was very, very happy about that. and and and, like you said, that that last scene with uh, all the suits and the big showdown fight, I mean, visually, that was probably my favorite part as far as the three d. Uh, seeing you know, seeing him jumping off these ledges with the uh, you know, scaffolding going by as these suits are also flying by and the lasers and the missiles and he's jumping into yeah, it looked great. It was
0: awesome. <laughs> I have to say that sequence is one of the ones that I I'm really looking forward to having on Blu ray so I can pause and actually count all the different suits and just look them up online and see where they came from because they do go by really quickly, but you can tell they put a lot of detail into them, and there's some of the suits that I'd never seen before, and then there are some that I remember going, "Oh, is that what I think? Is that the silver Sphinx there? Is that the one that I remember'cause
1: and i like the I like the fact that they had the one that kind of looked like a Hulkbuster, you know, like hold up the building
0: yeah uh-huh.
1: that was great
0: yeah, they did some really cool stuff with the different uh with the different suits um and I like that uh you know the 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 one that really Kind of, well, I don't want to be too spoilery in case people too yeah,
2: well, in. we we've, we've, I mean, we uh, we spoiled the twist in the, the first big two stuff. minutes yeah, that's of, true. of the, talk, the, the so. When
0: when the prodigal son returns, you know the fun. You know the most up to date one, number forty two, shows up. You know, I thought that was a brilliant moment because, um, you know, it is this non weaponized suit, and he uses it in a very clever fashion. Um, you know, those kinds of things are what makes Tony interesting to me as a reader or as a viewer of these movies is that he's able to come up with clever solutions that are not just brute force i mean a lot of the times when you see him in the comics depending on who's writing him he can be just essentially played up as you know a powerhouse or a, a paragon like thor or or like the hulk you know where he's all about how strong he can get but when he's most interesting to me is when he's coming up with creative solutions to a problem that, you know, nobody else would come up with. Yeah, and absolutely. And that to me is, is just one of those moments where it's like, yeah, uh, I, 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 I've seen the complaint that a lot of people had um, was that he didn't stay in the suit longer, so it wasn't a movie about Iron Man per se. And I think they missed the point about what they were saying about Iron Man is that... Tony is Iron Man. Tony
1: is Iron Man. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The suit is just a tool. And, you know... I mean, he even says it. It's the very last thing. mm -hmm. You know, in that very last sequence, if if you're not counting the part after the credits where, you know, we can talk about that little bit at the (laughs) end if we want. But, um... If we're not talking about that, the very last sequence is a sequence of images of things after the big battle, and then he's having a little monologue there talking uh, about stuff. And then, you know, the last thing he says is, you know, no matter what anybody thinks, or, or you know, I, I can't remember. It's been, a, it's been a, like a week or so, but something to the effect of, no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody thinks, I am Iron Man. And. Yeah you know and and that that's what was great for me about that was that they they really did try to focus that that you know what what makes him cool isn't just the fact that he has you know all these suits it's the fact that he uh you know has this power within himself that he's a compelling character on his own like the fact that he made those little you know gadgets uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in in that little garage in the kid's garage and, and goes and like infiltrates this place with all these armed guards you know with like little uh, gadgets that look like something uh, Data would use from Goonies you know and uh, <laughs> I'm
2: thinking but, MacGyver but yeah
1: <laughs> yeah and you know but he pulls it off and it's great and it's because you know uh, no matter if he's got the suit on or not, you know he 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 is he is a hero. He is someone that can accomplish great things. He is Iron Man. You know?
0: One of the things that um, got cut from the film, uh, I've been reading up on it. Um, if you remember the original uh, party sequence in CERN at the very beginning of the movie, um, there's a quick moment that. Uh, he runs into the scientist who, in the first movie, helped save his life with mm-hmm. yeah, um, by creating he the electromagnet, it. and he, and that scientist is trying to introduce him to this Chinese guy. Well, in the international cut of the movie, that Chinese actor gets more screen time, but um, you know even that was cut down from his original role, he's a very famous actor in China, and actually including him in the movie was a big part of like a big PR campaign to try and and make the movie more interesting to the Chinese audience, because that's such a big movie-going audience right now. It's a big market for films. So they wanted to try and include, you know... a a local actor so they got a you know a hong kong chinese actor whose um name escapes me at the moment but um i'm not even sure i could pronounce it if i (laughs) if i remembered but um they are talking about taking the scenes that he was in and editing them into a short film of their own um that will then be uh probably put on the the dvd or blu-ray or something i'm guessing um which i'm looking forward to but if you're very careful, if you look, and this is something that only knowing ahead of time you could really spot, but um, at the very end of the movie where they're pulling the shrapnel out of, um, out of his heart and, uh, and doing the surgery there, the surgeon who's working on him is that, that same Chinese oh. guy. So that's, that was supposed to be part of the circle closing um, in the storyline, but that was cut for time. So that's actually uh, something I'm looking forward to seeing more about that character
1: in the, uh, in the extras that they're talking about doing. Well, you know, that scene brings up a good point. Um, if you've seen, you know, anybody that's seen the movie, when he, when he goes to CERN, he's a uh, classic old school Tony Stark, like how, how you would see him before he became Iron Man in the first movie, but even maybe a little bit more flamboyant and um, kind of cocky. As he's going through the party and really just disregarding anybody that doesn't have a short skirt on and um, that and then what I thought you know obviously the big twist of the movie was the Mandarin thing, but for me, the emotional twist of the movie was at the at the end, after the big battle, when he's with um, pepper and After all this investment... Like, you know, he's put a lot of emotional investment in all these armors and been spending all his time crafting them and has really been just kind of consumed because of his anxiety and his feelings of probably um, helplessness in that moment of what happened in the Avengers. uh, Has been pouring himself into the work of crafting these things and taking away from his relationship from Pepper. And then in this moment of them together after he thinks she's you know died he blows up all of his suits for her Christmas present you know and to me that was like the big emotional twist of uh, here's Tony Stark who thinks the best present for his uh, you know steady hardcore girlfriend is a, a giant oversized stuffed bunny with uh, excuse me for the younger viewers but very large uh, uh, breasts and it was just uh, a <laughs> You know, to to go from that guy to the guy that's willing to destroy all this time, effort, and emotional attachment in a moment of a gesture for the woman that he loves, uh, I thought was even a bigger twist in a way.
0: Rick, any more comments?
2: Um, no. I mean, we, uh, I, I someone posted something online that I thought was funny that in, in a Iron Man 4 someone should like attack Pepper and she should just grab the gun and flare up and melt it and then go you know and just and, and that be just kind of a a little throwaway thing that oh yeah he fixed her and he didn't take away her superpowers he just you know made sure she wouldn't explode but I, I don't think they would actually do that but the idea of it I thought was funny
1: <laughs> I have a feeling that they did just uh, that. They are just going to stabilize the extremis uh, that's in her body, and um, she would will probably be able to control it. Maybe even in the next one, we'll see a another sidekick to Iron Man instead of uh, Iron Patriot.
2: Well, you know, I was thinking that once once they injected her, that they were going to do like they did in the comics recently, where Pepper was injured, and so they put an arc reactor in her chest. And he, and that powered her uh, her rescue armor, and so I thought that's where they were going with with that. And but uh, I I wasn't sad that they didn't do that. And I, I think it makes <laughs> more more sense from a a thematic point that he takes the arc reactor out of her chest, and it would make sense out of his chest, and also takes the extremis out of her
0: do know that kevin feige recently in a um interview said that um we haven't seen the last extremis in the marvel movies um so they they will be bringing those or it's still there and still exists
1: and um i hope aim is still going to exist as well since now he's gone the head of aim i hope that doesn't get rid of aim as a as a entity that was something i was worried about
0: the perfect the that's kind of the perfect setup, actually, because now AIM has to go underground. It has become this terrorist organization that it was in the comics, so it can't. And
2: hopefully, we'll get Modoc.
0: <laughs> that would be interesting, <laughs> to say the least. That would be characters to really translate to the screen. I think.
2: Yeah, it would be hard to do visually, but he's. Uh, he, I'm. I'm such a fan of the character that I just. I, I want. I I want M.O.D.O.K. to show up eventually.
1: Yeah, I mean, considering we have a full CG Hulk now, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's possible.
2: Yeah, Uh, Well, I think it's it's possible.
0: I'm just not sure how easy it is to sell it to the audience.
2: Yeah, and make it not look ridiculous.
0: (laughs) But um, one of the things that uh, we are getting in in one of the upcoming movies is a uh, um, a talking raccoon. So you never know.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Don't make a 36-year-old man squee. <laughs> love love Rocket Raccoon. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. I can't
0: wait for that movie. And they've they've started announcing some of the casting. Zoe Saldana is gonna be in it. Um oh
1: well she's in everything, so of course.
0: Yeah, she's um I can't remember the name Gamora. of the character Gamora, yeah, the green girl. So she's been talking in interviews about how they're gonna make her green. So that'll be interesting to see her she's played a blue character now she can play a green character.
1: I just still can't get my mind around Andy Dwyer from Parks and Recreation being Star Lord, but I'll go with it. I'm curious I've to seen, see what they do. I've seen
0: some recent pictures of him uh, that, you know, this just shows how geeky I am. I'm following the movie, not the. But, um, uh, I've seen some pictures of him. Damn, he's huge, right? Now. Um, like yeah, I've seen pictures of him from like when, kind of when he's like flabby and and you know uh, he wasn't necessarily very physically imposing uh, wanted either but um, you know they, they showed you know I've somebody tweeted some pictures of him uh, on the street coming out of his workout and geez man they got huge right now <laughs> so uh, I, I I really have tip my hat to these people who are willing to go through that much physical effort to transform themselves for, but
1: uh, yeah definitely
0: <laughs> so uh, in a nutshell well, let's see um, I don't want to keep you guys up too late but uh, um, as far as looking at Iron Man if you were going to look at a single sequence of that movie and try to translate it to a role playing game and trying to bring it into a role-playing game, which would be the sequence you'd, you'd look to and say that you're—that's the one you want to try and imitate. We'll start with Rick.
2: Well, I think the the um, the hardest one would be with all with Tony flipping in and out of suits of armor every other every other action round. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, you know one of the the things that that is almost expected of game masters. When you've got somebody who's in a super suit, is to have an adventure where they can't be in the super suit or the super suit is broken. Mm-hmm. So, um, like the fight where Tony's try tony is up against the two extremis soldiers in the little town, or um, or, or his assault on uh, on the 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 quote unquote mandarin's compound uh, was neat um, because it had the hero you know without all of his usual gadgets uh, i've i've been in a couple situations in campaigns where uh, i had a character uh, who had a, a super suit or you know some and only in hero id kind of thing and they were trapped in their regular id and in in the wrong hands that can be really frustrating because you've built this especially in point-based systems where you kind of go well I'm just going to save all these points by you know putting it all only in hero ID mm-hmm. and then when the GM puts you only puts you in your normal ID for a period of time then you're like oh I'm completely screwed cuz I have no stats I have nothing um, but if done if done well it can be really entertaining for the character uh, to be, um, you know, without their normal stuff, but still, uh, you know, in Tony's case, you know, the the hypothetical GM said, all right, well, you can make umpty points worth of gadgets because you've got the inventor uh, advantage. And so, the you know, you imagine the player going, going, okay, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make that, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make that. And, you know, having fun... Uh, working around that limitation.
3: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Tali, what was your,
0: what was the scene you you most wanted to try and imitate in a game?
1: Well, you know, and again, it, it, for me, it comes down to like which system you're going to be using. Um, uh, I would handle the movie diff- very differently, for instance, if I was using Mutants and Masterminds, than if I was using Marvel Heroic. But for instance, for me, uh, what I usually find to be the most compelling are the uh, the kind of story development or c- character development parts of the game, and also of other stories. So I would probably pick the section where he busts into the um, the little sh- shed garage uh, workshop area, mm-hmm. and and first meets the kid. Uh, I would treat that as as a good transitional scene using Marvel heroic. Uh, it's it's a nice way to. Um, set up after the player has lost the suit and the, you know, the, uh, the big explosion and coming down in the, in the forest, uh, set up the scene of they find the place, um, you know, let them come in, uh, see that it's got this kind of mechanical setup, um, then introduce this character that brings in another side to the story. And all of this is just done as role-playing, but then um, before you end that transitional scene and go into an action thing of him actually going out and trying to do something, you can give them that chance to create you know, either an asset or a resource, uh, making some sort of devices there inside the workshop, getting the kid to start working on the suit, and however you want to it. You know.
2: <laughs> I have to say, I was kind of nervous when the kid showed up because so often you know the the action hero and the kid can be such a badly done cliche but they just handled it just right
1: yeah yeah and th- that was something i wanted to bring up earlier i guess was just one reason why i brought it into my um my role play example is that um you like you said that's a trope that's been uh abused used and abused and um Usually, when they bring that in, it's kind of like a last-ditch effort to uh, draw in, you know, more audience. Um, it, it may be that kind of trick, but they, well, he like wasn't you said, in any they handled the it right. So that
2: was—I don't think he was there to bring in extra viewers. Just because if they had, they would have put him in the trailer.
1: Yeah. Now I did see some uh, promotion before the movie, and they were talking about him and. His mm. uh his uh interactions with Tony and you know how he was gonna be a big treat and da da da. But but yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things. They uh like you said, they they handled it really well and it and it worked in the story and um you know, he was compelling and he had a, 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 a nice little storyline and he he kept his own with uh Robert Downey Jr. on the screen, so that's no small feat.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, he, I I like the way they played off each other. They did a uh, they had a nice rapport between the two. Um, to kind of jump in with the, um, my favorite scene of the movie, and this is something that uh, was reinforced after kind of having a conversation on Facebook with a couple of my friends, including Steve Kins. Name drop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um it, it, he actually. Sp- sparked this when he basically uh, said he was coming out of the theater and, and it struck him how his uh, favorite part of superhero movies is when the hero is rescuing people rather than you know just necessarily fighting the bad guy. And it kind of drove home for me something that I'd noticed before as well. I mean, that 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 for me is what makes it a, a hero movie instead of an adventure movie. Um, and, you know, for example, it, In Superman, we know he's a superhero because the first thing he does is rescue Lois Lane. And that's the thing that's important enough for him to put on the costume and and go out and do. Um, He fights some bad guys in that sequence after that, but he also does some rescuing. And it's always that coming back and rescuing people or protecting people that kind of defines who he is. But you compare that to the... um, And I apologize for bringing up this movie, but if you compare that to Daredevil, um, where at no point in the entire film does he rescue anyone, and it's kind of like that's the difference for me. Um, You know, Superman really works as a superhero. Daredevil, the movie, does not. It utterly fails because at no point is he actually making the world a better place. He's only serving his own selfish interests. And, you know, he may be. To avenge what he sees as wrongs, but he's not helping anyone by doing that. Um, He's not actually making people's lives better. And um, you know, for me, that's what made Iron Man 3 really work: is that there is this huge set piece rescue sequence, Um, Mm -hmm. and they've, they've 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 you know shown it on the trailers where you know these people get sucked out of an airplane, and he goes flying after them to rescue them and it's the barrel of monkeys sequence and in, in, in the credits they even list the barrel of monkeys skydivers um, yeah I saw that <laughs> but um, and and, it, and it's a great clever sequence with you know Iron Man trying to outthink a situation that seems impossible and that's the challenge is to try and all these lives and you know if he misses one person you know the character has failed and and, and that's the kind of Thing that I've been thinking about and I actually wrote an article um, on the Vigilance Press website uh, posted it as a blog entry um, on uh, super rescues and I used the uh, Superman rescuing Lois Lane from the helicopter in the very first Superman the movie uh, as kind of my uh, archetypical example but for me that was the, the thing that I wanted to try and, and take as inspiration from this film and, and try to bring into my next game uh, is that idea of, of making superhero rescues as exciting in the game as they are in, in, in the, uh, the movie. And the problem that I've run into with games is that uh, it can be too much about the challenge and not enough about the, uh, the emotional connection between the, the hero or the audience and the, uh, and the character being rescued, which is really important in the movies. So um, that's the thing that I took away from it.
1: Well, you know, one of the strong things about Mutants and Masterminds is the fact that they have a mechanic set up there that's uh, that lets you kind of uh, work that really into your games because you've got a spendable, you know, this uh, virtual commodity there in, in in your game setup to give to players when they do stuff like that when they uh, take their turn to save the civilians in the burning building that the villain just set on fire as he's blasting away at your other. Teammate, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, when they do that, when they use their turn to do that, you know, I reward them that hero point for doing something very, you know, heroic, and then, then they, uh, you know, they have they have those extra reasons, that extra push of, you know, beyond the fact that it's the right thing to do, um, you know, also I get this little goodie to play with. So. Mhm. Mhm. Rick. Uh
2: yeah, I I I agree, and I think Marvel, you can create. Uh, threats and use the doom pool to uh, do that sort of thing, and the the timer mechanic that they added in uh, Annihilation is is good for that as well.
0: Oh, I haven't actually read the this one yet because I haven't got my Annihilation book yet. I'm still waiting on uh, my friend to bring it over. <laughs>
2: uh, I have the. I, I just I got the PDF, so uh, it it was also in the. Uh, the uh, demo, one of the demo adventures that uh, that uh, I I was lucky enough to get my hands on and run at Alcon.
1: Very cool. So yeah, so uh, another thing that you can do there with the Marvel Heroic System to kind of simulate that um, that same sort of um, give and play to, to uh, give a reason for the the players to try to do more rescues in your game, make them more heroic. Um, a lot of times people don't think about in the marvel game actually attacking the doom pool to try to make it smaller um, what you could do is when you're in a situation where the the watcher has put out a bunch of um, civilians out in 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 the middle of the scene so that maybe the the su- superhero battle is near civilians or or uh... you know buildings things of that nature you can actually uh... save people describe yourself saving people as part of your turn Uh, and what you do is you actually roll against the doom pool then um, you you you, you know like normally you you get your two die for your total unless you're gonna add more with your plot points like you can Um, but then with your effect die what you're doing instead of causing harm to the villain or or things of that nature making a complication what you're doing is you're actually taking away a die from the doom pool using that effect die uh, making it easier for everybody else uh, making the chaos smaller and simu- you know, simulating you actually rescuing these people and uh, making the danger for, for the uh, surrounding area much, much smaller. So um, while you don't exactly get the spendable, unless something happens with your die where you get the plot points, um, it, it's still a, a way to give you kind of a reward, making it easier for you by, by, by rescuing people and being heroic.
0: Very cool, very cool. I hadn't ever thought of using it that way. That's really nice. All right, well, I think um, I think we're going to wrap it up here, and uh, um, hope everybody enjoyed our our little uh, um, review of Iron Man three, as well as some some. Meditating on, on how you can take uh, inspiration from different sources uh, like Iron Man 3 to your games. But um, I also want to thank my special guests for uh, helping us talk about uh, campaign creation and uh, the differences between different kinds of campaigns. And uh, th- Rick, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, my pleasure.
0: And Tolly, it's always good to have you on board.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. And a uh, shout-out to all the listeners out there. And uh, to everyone
0: listening, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Uh, Until next time, stay vigilant.